in the beginning, Bellamy did what anyone in his place would do. He researched what he had become. Old stories passed down from generation to generation about fierce animals stalking the woods, either the product of witchcraft involving the fat of dead children or a bite by an afflicted wolf, or, more absurdly, born on Christmas Eve. Many traditions had their skinwalkers. India was the Rakasha, Africa the Ilmu, China the Langren. Folklore regarding man-beasts went back as far as one cared to research, all with unique but similar stories. The French, Loup Garou, changed with the cycles of the moon, but while in animal form, had the full awareness and thoughts of their human form. Bellamy did not. While transformed, he was completely animal and had only fragmented memories of perpetrating the violence afterward. But everything that he read was legend, nothing more to him than bad television. All he knew was how he came to be a ruthless marauder tethered to the night, and how each layer of repression, sexual compulsion, and sociopathy within him gave birth to the thing that he would become. To appropriate a line from Dickens, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, for 18-year-old Bellamy Florent. His story began with a group of friends setting out on an adventure that they hoped would include mild debauchery, a bit of drinking, and with a little luck, the acquisition of female company. Their first stop on the day in question was a shack on the outskirts of their hometown, two and a half hours outside the French Quarter. At 18, we tend to ignore the warnings of our elders, particularly when the parental admonitions involve an outcast type who holds an alluring but unapproachable mystique among local townsfolk. Thérèse de Clapion was a distant relative of Marie Laveau, a well-known voodoo priestess who lived during the 1800s, about whom many accounts had been passed down through the generations. Stories of rites that she had performed on the banks of Lake Pontchartrain, including bonfires, animal sacrifices, and staged orgies, all recounted in hushed whispers as if the mere retelling held the power to release malevolence upon its tellers. One such tale involved Marie Laveau, seated on a makeshift throne of human skulls directing the wanton participants while dancing with a large snake dubbed La Grande Zombie. She writhed seductively, snake in one hand, shaking a gourd rattle in the other and hissing, Dambala, yee-hee-hee. Bellamy would never be able to recount whose idea it was to visit the woman, or even why, but he had vivid memories of the dimly lit room that smelled of incense and boiled meat. Qui says this pontain coming to my door? She said in her thick Creole accent, of which I will be doing a pathetic approximation as I convey this tale. Therese wiped her hands with a dish towel as she stepped out of an adjoining room and into the sitting area that contained a large, ornate chair, seated across from a stool with a small table between them. Opposite, an orange couch covered with cat hair sat against the wall, next to a small round table that held a few bottles that contained multicolored liquids. Medusa-like coils of yellow hair sprang from her head in all directions, beaded at the ends so that when she moved, the clicking harmonized with her thick Cajun accent. 
Her dark skin was dappled with freckles, her eyes the color of dark mustard. Therese appraised the three young men. So you go into town, but you want a little something from Therese first, yes? When the three men exchanged curious glances, she chuckled deeply. Oh, Therese, you know everything. Now sit, you. She pointed to Jasper, the smallest of the three, who was skulking behind the other two young men. She took him by the elbow and led him to the stool, shooing the feline occupant with a firm wave of her hand and a hissed, The cat scurried across the room, stretching out on the floor, and then it began cleaning itself. He wants to know if he's getting laid tonight, ma'am, said Charlie, the largest of the three, a great lumberjack of a boy with rusty hair and a friendly smile. Watch it grand be before I pass a slap, twak twak. Therese replied, feigning a slap upside his head. Don't fret, you and your partners be stepping out your pants soon enough, I see that clearly for sure. So get them thistles out your drawers and sit there. She pointed to the orange couch. Charlie followed Bellamy to the couch as Therese plunked herself down in the large chair across from Jasper. She grabbed one of his hands, rubbing both sides with her own, as if to warm it. She closed her eyes and smiled. You have a guy am, but you still looking for a bon ring, say? Jasper's face reddened immediately. He had a girlfriend, all right. But Cassie, the naive daughter of a local preacher, wouldn't put out. Her daddy set you straight. Jasper pulled his hand away and stood up, moving away from the woman and shoving his hands into his pockets. You be getting what you written around for tonight, that and more. She winked at him and then motioned for Charlie to take the stool that Jasper had vacated. When she held his hand in hers, she rolled her eyes and laughed heartily. Ay, Cayon. You nothing but a big dumb ox, ain't you? But you be getting all the salope, all the dirty girls. Child, I can smell the stink of the son taint on your breath. She let his hand go. You've no business with me. You getting a pute for three men. You go sit down now next to the little one. She then motioned to Bellamy with her head, silently ordering him to the stool. When she took his hand and closed her eyes, she was silent for a long time. Eventually, a broad smile slithered across her face. Ooh, child. You what my mare called envie, a walking craving. That's what you are. Not long for this place. I see you a roadie. You go and you never come home. True that. And you be stuck in that mopri, that bad place of envie like Tayo, the big hungry dog. She dropped Bellamy's hand and stood. I see who you be with tonight. And she pretty, oh, but she no good for anything but the gas she got between her legs. Don't fret. I fix it so she can't make the misery. Bellamy could not have known that the voodoo priestess had seen where their travels would lead that night when she took each of their hands, nor that her motives were personal. That Therese de Glapion had a score to settle with the woman who'd been responsible for the death of a family member long ago. A death meted out amid jealousy and a long-harbored hatred between families. He couldn't have known any of this as she went into the back room and prepared a concoction of graveyard dust, herbs, oils, the small bones, hair, nails, and pulverized manure of a wolf, and a piece of red cloth 
once soaked in the perspiration of the woman who was to become Bellamy's first victim. He only knew that when Teres returned with the small pouch, tied off with what looked like twine, but in reality was skillfully braided human hair, she told him to keep the talisman in his pocket for one week, then kissed both of his palms. Many hours later, after a considerable amount of drinking and youthful merriment had taken place, the three young men paired off with three not quite as young but much more experienced women in a seedy brothel located in the French Quarter. Bellamy's company was a woman named Cosette. She had a mane of black hair that hung in heavy tendrils to her waist like liquid tar and eyes with flecks of orange that dotted each smoky iris. Cosette sat astride him, naked, with her shoulders straight and back arched, accentuating the seductive curve at the small of her back. Bellamy was shirtless but still in his trousers, the talisman he'd earlier tucked into a pocket all but forgotten. When he reached out to touch one of her small breasts, she gently took his hand, licked his thumb, and traced her bottom lip with it. What you like, boy? She asked, but didn't wait for a response. In the dark room with the curtains billowing in on an October breeze that was bathed in the light of a full moon, and with the sound of drunken revelers wafting in from the street below, Cosette spent a great deal of time, starting with the removal of his pants and working her way back up the length of his body with moist lips, a warm tongue, and nipping teeth. For 18-year-old Bellamy, it was an experience unlike the furtive groping that he had enjoyed up to that point. So when his entire body began to shudder and his face flushed, he didn't immediately understand that something different was occurring. It wasn't until some time later when he had dug into her with a final thrust, stretching up so that the tendons in his neck were taut with the effort, that he caught a glimpse of himself in the mirror over the bed. The bleat of a patrol car outside snapped him to attention. His ears flattened. The fur along his spine bristled. His eyes twin glints of yellow gold the face of the half-man, half-animal staring back at him was barely recognizable. He was covered in blood. One of her arms hung off the bed, attached only by a thin ribbon of flesh. Her lifeless eyes stared vacantly toward the billowing set of curtains, now covered in blood spatter. Bite marks ran the length of her legs, and a huge chunk of meat was missing from her left thigh. Both breasts were completely pulverized into hollow shells on her chest. Bellamy didn't remember any of the carnage having transpired. The hunger rumbling within him was mixed with fear and confusion. His hands trembled as he yanked clothes on over his blood-soaked body. After chancing a look into the hall, he sprinted down the back stairwell and disappeared into the night. Although he never fully transformed that night, he would on nights to follow. Teres had been correct in her prediction. He would never return home, never see his family again, and for months spent his time hiding in the overgrown swamp area surrounding New Orleans. The dark, foreboding bayou became his home. He scavenged sustenance from the plentiful wildlife, surviving as a hermit amid the cypress trees, only venturing into the Lower Ninth Ward at night to steal whatever he needed to survive 
and feed on the occasional homeless person that he found sleeping in the streets. He became adept at befriending the men, pretending to be one of them until he could lure them somewhere to incapacitate or kill them and then steal their clothes and anything else that he could put to use. For the better part of a year, this was how he existed until the yen for more took hold, the desire to be something other than a trapped animal. He knew that he had to figure out a way to live among people while coming to grips with the monster that he turned into at every full moon. During his research, done mostly at odd hours in local libraries, he could find no real answers, nothing that gave him any clue about how to proceed. His life was about survival, He moved from place to place to avoid detection, eventually hopping a train where he would have a fortuitous meeting with an old man that he called Beat Barney. Beat Barney figured him for a runaway and Bellamy did nothing to disabuse him of that notion. He journeyed with the man on the train for as long as he could, keeping track of the calendar at every stop so that when the next full moon came around he could sneak away. When Bellamy told Beat Barney that it was time for him to go off on his own, the old man asked if he needed anything. Bellamy told him he had everything that he needed. When he pressed further, and still did not get the response that he was looking for, finally Beat Barney said, Identification, maybe? Who are you? Or should I ask, who do you need to be? It had never occurred to Bellamy to plan for anything other than each day as it came. Beat Barney took Bellamy to see a friend who lived in Mississippi, a couple miles from their final stop together. After some bartering, Bellamy Florent became Bellamy Fisk, with a brand new social security card and birth certificate. He paid with a watch that he had stolen from a booth at a farmer's market and an old army fatigue jacket that he had taken from one of the homeless men in Louisiana. Beat Barney's friend had almost talked him into throwing in the weather-beaten talisman given to him by Therese de Glapion when he pulled it out of his pocket with the watch. But for some reason, Bellamy couldn't let it go. He came back in the middle of the night again. I drank myself to sleep, as is my habit. Although as of late, Carla is usually there with me scrolling along whatever it is she scrolls on that godforsaken iPhone. The TV's usually on, but muted, unless breaking news disturbs the pleasing reverie wafting in the opened windows. Having spent a great deal of my time in Detroit, its city and suburbs, I would have never thought that the sounds of the street could become the way I most enjoyed falling asleep. We're on the third floor, No chance of whatever's going on outside coming inside. Unless what's going on is a bomb. And for better or worse, mostly worse, we'd already survived two of those. The smells are getting in. But for the most part, those are a pleasing part of the experience. Bread smells in the morning from the nearby bakery. Food smells most of the day. And once it's dark, the moisture that descends each afternoon in a fine mist of rain, mixes with the smell of the plants and flowers in the area, and it's all filtered together to create an intoxicating addition to the actual intoxicants I'm pipelining into my body 
in quantities far exceeding my usual amount. When she doesn't want to deal with me, or maybe when she just needs to be anywhere but where she's going to get challenged with reality, Carla disappears. Usually that's happening at night. Because we do our Jolene follow-ups in the afternoon, after waking up late and having a late brunch, a couple hours of walking around town, following up on threads that aren't actually threads, and then we head back to the room for some lazy TV watching and scrolling until it's time to eat again. Well, Carla eats, I drink. I'll grab a burger now and again, but more often than not, I'm drinking my meals. Carla notices. Her plate usually consists of some reasonable protein, something green, and bread, because that gal loves her bread. But I rarely have my own plate, not when we're eating together. Her schedule of eating, one that normal humans tend to subscribe to, doesn't always fit with my alcohol schedule. I drink my three squares, and if I eat, I'm scarfing down something late at night when I'm blitzed enough to feel hunger and motivated enough to follow through with finding something. This has meant lots of takeout at insane hours of the night, sometimes even gas station fare being consumed while Carla isn't even around when she's on her walkabouts. You'd think I'd be concerned about a woman out alone at night in a place like this, but I'm not. I mean, above and beyond the risk we all take just walking the streets in an age where any random male can pull a rifle out of his truck and start shooting up a Walmart simply because he's got a pimple on his face or he's having a bad day. I think Carla can handle herself just fine, and it's probably a good idea that she gets comfortable with that. I'm not going to always be here to wrench her pretty ass out of a jam. When Bellamy saw the two bobcats scaling a compost pile on the side of a house, he felt that familiar tug. His spine tingled and he shuddered violently. He shed his clothing and barely made it over the threshold of the open window when his hands transformed into paws. Strong, muscled haunches launched the wolf over the gutter. The wolf hit the ground running, bounding over a thick tangle of laurel. He caught the neck of the male bobcat and the two animals rolled into a thicket that was carpeted with bushy aster. A family of mice scuttled from beneath a nearby copse of trees and scurried into the night. With their limbs tangled in motion, the wolf and the bobcat growled deeply, teeth gnashing. The female bobcat hissed nearby, her reddish-brown pelage standing on end as she swiped a nail-extended paw across the wolf's left flank. With the male bobcat's now broken neck gripped tightly in his jaw, the wolf slung the animal back and forth, disengaging the head. The female bobcat spit and caterwauled, pouncing on the wolf's back, digging her teeth into its side. The wolf reared up on his hind legs, shook the female from his back and leapt around to face her, backside in the air, front legs bent low to the ground. She released a long, high-pitched snarl, and then she transformed into a slight female, gasping ragged breaths as she knelt beside the body of the dead male bobcat. Her body was covered in scars, old and new, the older ones looking almost like streaks of silver on her skin. Bellamy phased instantly. Covered in blood, he stood over the bent woman as her eyes widened in recognition. 
When Bellamy finally opened his mouth to speak, she stood and phased in mid-leap, disappearing into the brush. Carla's face was illuminated by the laptop screen. She wore a long white t-shirt that came to mid-thigh. The logo on the front appeared to be a high school mascot, a bird, probably an acquisition from one of the local thrift stores. Carla liked thrift stores, farmer's markets, thrift stores, garage sales, and I'm not sure if this was a new thing because in the grand scheme of things, we haven't known each other all that long. We were two people tossed together by chance and held together by the kind of glue only repeated trauma can create. Never a dull moment means never a whole lot of space to just be, to air things out between the accusations, recriminations, and ruminations of how that combined trauma over a short span of time might actually be all that exists between the sentences and the silence. Think about it this way. You're in an elevator with three other people. That elevator comes to a jarring stop after free-falling a couple dozen floors. The lights go out. The fire alarm in the building you're now stuck in starts to blare. You reasonably panic. You might try to calm your new friends in the box where you're trapped. You're there for three days, let's say, during which time the fire is fought, but the building begins to crumble, and it takes a bit of time for you all to be rescued. What happens in the ensuing hours is you bond with your friends in the box. You get to know each other. All the best and worst in each of you comes out in this short span of time. You get an up-close look and smell, because humans start to stink after a day or so, but you get an up-close look at the human condition. These are now your compatriots, the last people on Earth, the people you are sure you will die alongside. Humans have this instinctive ability to come together in times of crisis, fight the good fight. These people in the box have become your family. In some cases, you'd risk your life for them, maybe, even if getting them out meant you not getting out. Then the door to the box opens, the rubble is pulled away, and you're free to go. Everything you've just gone through instantly becomes something else. Stripped of the life-or-death stakes, when everything that required you to be something for those strangers is finally relieved, you're left with a brand new reality. You realize it was silly to think you'd ever risk your life for anyone else. You realize you didn't even like two of those strangers, and the other two were okay. But remaining friends after getting out of the box, well, what did you really have in common, anyway? Would the illusion last longer than the time it took to be interviewed by local reporters about the burning building and all the heroic efforts inside and outside the box? I'd like to take a shower, so if you could eke out a moment from your busy schedule to clean up your puke from the bathroom floor, that would be great. I dragged ass out of bed, or tried anyway. My legs kept getting tangled in the sheets. I was still drunk. Couldn't even tell what time it was. Is it dawn or dusk? Friday or Thursday? I grabbed my laptop from the pillow it was resting on atop her legs and slapped it closed. Or no, Jesus. How many times do I have to ask you to stop invading my privacy? I don't know. How many times am I going to have to clean up your puke or ask you to clean it up? Kitten, we can solve both of those problems right now. 
I went to clean up the puke. She watched me the entire time. There were tendrils of muted red around her, flecked with gold that muddied to brown as it entered the frame of the red. She was sad. I could see that. And I had picked up on it over the last few months in the normal course of our day. Something had shifted. Maybe a realization. I was too fuzzy-headed to make it all out. But what I couldn't miss was the fear. Those muddy edges of the gold. That was fear. And it was something I'd never seen in her aura before. Carla usually barged into any situation, emotional or otherwise, almost daring repercussions to approach. It seemed to me that attitude is what had propelled her forward from the grief of losing her son and all the way through to the present day. The bobcat was perched on the eaves outside his window, batting her tail back and forth, languidly. Bellamy sat up and stared at her for a long time before she turned and leapt gracefully to the ground, slowly making her way back into the woods. He would think about her often. It bothered him to know that she was out there somewhere without her mate. Coming face to face with another of his kind had jarred Bellamy to his core, but during his many subsequent evenings in the woods, he never ran across the bobcat, until one night about a year after the incident. He awoke with an unnerving sense of being watched. Carla had picked up the laptop again and opened it. I tossed a towel covered in my sick into the bathtub and turned on the faucet. We can't keep doing this. My statement was broad enough that Carla was able to take from it only what she wanted. I'm invested in the story now, Morno. She was talking about book eight, but I couldn't help but think it was the same reason we were still in this cycle of whatever, in this box of our own creation. Am I the bobcat? I closed the bathroom door and stepped into the shower. Bellamy could feel her presence. The familiar tingling sensation ran up his spine. He slowly turned to see the bobcat whipping her tail aggressively as she sauntered into the barn. Bellamy had found work as a farmhand and slept in a small room off the barn. It wasn't much, but it was comfortable and it afforded him the opportunity to hunt at night. An old dog named Winston lived in the barn with him. A large brown Great Dane that had taken to him instantly. Bellamy sensed that it was because the dog didn't have the alpha male response that many dogs did. Winston had been raised alone on the farm, and Bellamy's arrival came at a time when the dog was old and not interested in much but lying around. Bellamy took two steps to close the gap between himself and the bobcat, but she whipped around and blocked the exit as Winston stood and padded over to her. Bellamy could feel his body struggling to change, and he groaned with the effort of keeping himself from giving in to the magnetic pull. He clenched his fists as the muscles in his arms knotted and began to reform beneath his skin. The bobcat leapt toward him and Bellamy sprang up to meet her, transforming in midair. The animals landed in a writhing tangle of fur, the cat's savage yowling mingling with the wolf's deep growl as they tumbled around the floor. Winston fell backward over the lawnmower as he jumped into the fray. When the cat reared up and swiped a gash in the dog's eye, the animal retreated, whining in pain. 
The wolf growled a warning to the dog as the bobcat jumped up on a storage unit, then vaulted toward the ceiling. She hung from a wood beam, her human form as feral-looking as her animal one, covered in long-heeled scars, her red hair matted and clumped, wild eyes shining in the light of the kerosene lamp that illuminated the barn. The wolf jumped, its maw snapping viciously. The woman kicked the wolf's chest with both feet, sending him tumbling to the floor, and then let go of the beam and transformed as her paws hit the ground, directly in front of the dog. The bobcat hissed as she sprang at the dog, savagely latching onto its neck and ripping away a chunk of its flesh. Blood spurted from Winston as the wolf latched onto the back of the bobcat, tearing her off the injured animal. The wolf's thick coat stood on end like spikes as it slung the cat back and forth, slamming her head into a wood beam in the center of the room with a nauseating crack. A whispered whoosh of air became a dissonant prelude to the end as the Coleman lantern fell to the floor, igniting a pile of newspapers. The fire slithered to the gas can and a deep metallic thump sent fire around the perimeter of the room and flames licking the walls. The dying bobcat transformed into human form amid the circle of fire. The wolf, standing over her, let out a deep, distressed howl. It would be the last time that Bellamy allowed himself to get close enough to another that he could feel their pain as if it were his own. The wolf bounded into the woods, leaving only Bellamy's shredded clothing on the ground, a mystery for whoever would come upon them to puzzle out. He could only imagine how that investigation would go, and although he doubted the farm worker moonlighting as a werewolf would be at the top of the list of investigatory possibilities, there was no going back. What had occurred could not easily be explained away. It was again time for Bellamy to move on. The Dex Morneau Series by Jenny Decker. Narrated by Greg Kreitz and Jenny Decker. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. <laughs>